Hello, I'm Bill Drummond. I'm very honored to be here today. Several months ago, I told my good friend Susan Ackerman her interview on Public Power Underground was further confirmation that she is one of the cool kids. So when Therese Hampton reached out to me about hosting, I knew I had finally made it. Now, I did ask Paul to keep the cultural references age appropriate. Please, no games requiring knowledge of Parks and Rec or, or the latest Fred Lasso episode. Ask me about Arrested Development, Firefly, or The Grateful Dead, and we're good. Uh, recently, the Public Power Underground featured interviews with Jesse Jen Jenkins and Deborah Smith. They were asked about attracting young people to public power and the electric utility business. Jesse talked about being able to directly address carbon reduction and climate change, while Deborah added points about selling the purpose and selling the moment. Having been in the power business for over 40 years and with almost all of that working for representing public power systems, I thought about why I was drawn to public power. Certainly, I like the idea of local control where people receiving the service get to vote on the governance of the utility. If you wanna see a demonstration of democracy in action, go to a rural electric cooperative annual meeting. The opportunity to help provide an essential service at cost and trying to minimize that cost were also part of the equation. When you sit in utility boardrooms and listen to discussions about who gets cut off and who doesn't, or you hear a utility manager talking with someone who can't pay their bill and is in danger of being shut off, providing that essential service at cost gets real very fast. Local control and providing an essential service at cost were what got me started. But what kept me going uh, with public power was working with so many amazing people. Some were public power legends like Alan Jones, the father of, pub of the Public Power Council and mentors for me like Aldo Benedetti from Tacoma Public Utilities and Alex Radin, who was for 35 years head of the American Public Power Association. The vast majority I was blessed to work with, however, were regular people, farmers, ranchers, small business owners, folks from all walks of life who believed in the value of public service and were willing to commit their time and energy to helping their local communities. These were the people who were my inspiration. So when asked to encourage a young person to join a public power utility, I would say this. If you want a career that will help the world reduce carbon emissions and slow the growth of greenhouse gases, if you want to do something about economic equity and believe that people should have a direct say in how their local utility is governed, and if you want to work with amazing people who share your values, public power is for you. Thank you. We started in hard times to bring Welcome to Public Power Underground, Public Power's premier infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I'm a longtime friend of the Underground, BPA Administrator Emeritus, former manager of the Public Power Council, and chair of the Western Power Pool, and this week's celebrity guest host, Bill Drummond. And I'm Dan Catchpole, contributing editor to Clearing Up, a, and uh, this week's podcast ambassador from News Data. And Paul wanted me to say, yeah, you I missed something promise, there, Dan. I put it in yeah, the script. You got to read the script, Dan. I, come on now, come sorry, on. Sorry, it's it's outside my nature. 
but I'll do uh, it for you. A, a two-time, two-time a uh, member, a, two, a member of a two-time uh, Pulitzer-nominated newsroom. Did I do that right, Dan? Yes. And yes. I was involved with the work. It wasn't just you like be, it wasn't just like you're part of the team. Yeah, if you did some of this, like mopping the floor. Yes. Yeah. You you interviewed Muhammad Ali. I we got I you that did. one a while yeah. ago, and now you're like two time. Now people know more about you. This isn't new, but it's it's news. Yeah, it was several years ago, but so. But it's still exciting. Yeah, yeah. we're catching up here at the Public Photo Underground. There you go. We'll get there. This is Karen Heim, the Office Administrator for PBC, co-star of this week's episode, and editor at large of Public Power Underground. And I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground, who sometimes writes the scripts and and the really uh, uh, kind of annoying things that people don't want to say about themselves, but I make them say it anyway. That's me. Uh, the manager of Klotzkine IPUD's Power Department and producer for today's recording, Paul Dockery. Great to have you, Bill. Great opening monologue, Bill. That was inspiring. <laughs> that was inspiring. Also, Firefly, great show. Arrested Development, great show. Grateful Dead, I'm not a deadhead. It's not part of my cultural genre. So you can all judge me for that. I'm open to your judgment of not being a deadhead. I have. It's it's okay. <laughs> Jerry's been dead for 25 years. So, you know, there you are. <laughs> yeah, I really found that an inspiring pitch for public power. I, 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 and uh, you did make sure that we knew that you paid attention to public power underground. I like this. And uh, for the record, Parks and Rec is available on streaming services. So get on that. So one could catch up if they had the time, (laughs) especially somebody in public service. I'm sure it will ring home for you. Well, now, now, wait a minute. You you haven't called me on my joke about Fred Lasso. Yeah. Well, you know, we weren't sure if it was a joke or not, and we didn't want to make it awkward. (laughs) I thought it was a, I thought it was a, I was like, that is a good joke. I hope that's a joke. Yeah. It's he's been listening. He's so been listening. tuning in. So I know we should have been ready for Bill, guys. We weren't ready. <laughs> it was too late to, to go back and see all of the past episodes. So, <laughs> yeah, your your assignment for next time is to watch Parks and Rec enough to know who you would identify with. Are uh-huh. you a Ron Swanson? Are you a Leslie? No, please. This is what we want to know about you, Bill, for next time. Or Tom Haverford. That's what my money's on. (laughs) (laughs) Or Tom Haverford. It's possible. It's possible. Or Andy Dwyer. You know, maybe I'm an Andy Dwyer walking around the world (laughs) and into a hole in the park. I can see I have a lot of work to do. I was going to say, Bill's like, I guess I'll write these names down. (laughs) Oh, welcome. I'm really excited about the show. I think we're ready to get into it. You ready, Bill? I am. All right. Uh, This is season four, episode 13. On today's recording, we'll discuss all sorts of energy news, including Lime Worker Appreciation Day, solar developers betting on RTO development, what's going on with the battery supply chain, jumpstarting inter-regional transmission, Aaron reports with Karen reporting, and a bunch of witty banter in between. Before we get started, Dan is going to read a quick word from our presenting sponsor. The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management group owned by public power entity entities like Klatskanai PUD. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. TEA does this by providing expertise in energy trading, 
advanced analytics, renewable solutions, and a whole lot more. Over 60 public power utilities have partnered with TEA to tackle their energy future. So if you are looking for an energy authority partner to partner with in navigating the uncertain future of our industry, visit TEAINC.org to learn more. That's TEAINC.org. The energy authority as underground as it gets. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks, Dan, I think. Uh, we're starting this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports with Karen Reporting. All right. This is Aaron Reports with Karen Reporting, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest power market indi- indicators for April 25th, 2022. I am Karen Heim, and I've got your market update for the week. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today is at $80.75 with natural gas at $6.15 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $37.70 and a heat rate of 13,100. Spot power in Southern California is at $79.87 and in Northern California at $82.14. May power at mid-sea is up $7 from a week ago to $55.05 and Sumas gas is at $6.04, translating to a heat rate of 9,000 BTU per kilowatt hour. May power at Palo Verde is down $1.40 from a week ago to $53.05 per megawatt hour. Uh, August power at mid-sea is trading down $2.55 per megawatt hour from a week ago to $172.30 with Sumas gas at $7.10, translating to a heat rate of 24,000 BTU per kilowatt hour. At Palo Verde, August power is at $249.10 per megawatt hour, down $19 from a week ago. In fish counts, 3,256 adult spring Chinook were counted at Bonneville yesterday, April 24th, bringing the year-to-date total up to 9,513. October October through September uh, flows at the Dalles for water year 2022 are currently forecasted to be 95% of normal uh, and April to September is at 94%. Outflow at the Dalles peaked over the past week at 163.9 KCFS on April 22nd. Day ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday was 1,250 and peak outflow this past week was 149.2 KCSF KFCFS uh, on April 20th. Checking in on Anthrogy's aggregated basin data on snow in the region, the aggregation of all the snow in the Columbia River Basin that'll flow through Bonneville Dam is estimated to be 111.23% of normal. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority, peak low this past week was about 7,739 on April 19th at 7.25 a.m. During loads peak, hydrogen was at 7,126, wind gen was 891, conventional units were 1,194, and nuclear was at 1,100. 161, all units in megawatts. Uh, ENSO for January, February, March period sits at negative 0.9 uh, Oceanic Nino index, and the multivariate ENSO index for February uh, and March is negative 1.3. And the SST consolidated Nino forecast indicates that Nino conditions are likely to continue through summer 2022. Uh, this week in NOAA climate forecast, the six to ten day outlook has the temp below normal and participation above precipitation. Pardon me, uh, above normal for the region. The thirty day outlook issued April twenty first shows a leaning toward above normal temperatures and below normal precipitation for parts of Oregon and Idaho. Ninety day seasonal outlooks were also updated on April twenty first. The temperature outlook shows above average temperatures uh, uh, emanating from the desert southwest all the way up to Oregon. Lots of Oregon and Washington. Pardon me. Uh, lots of red and oranges there. And inversely, but intuitively, the ninety day precipitation outlook is showing. Uh, a leaning for below average participation in the, across the Northwest. Uh, special thanks to Ansergy for letting us use their dashboards and a big thanks to Luji for compiling this week's report. That's all we've got for this update. Back to you, Bill. Yes. Uh, thank you, Karen. Um, any any commentary, any thoughts on uh, the temperature coming this summer? It seems like we're getting into that summer heat wave is starting to come 
Uh, we've had some cold up here in the Northwest, but the Southwest is starting to get some, some, some interesting heat in the forecast. Any thoughts on that? It's, I think it's going to be a, another hot summer. We had a pretty good snowstorm in Montana last week and, and actually part of this week uh, in southeastern Montana. So I, I was kind of surprised at the um, uh, the, the uh, precipitation forecast, or I should say the runoff forecast and power prices. The, the runoff forecast seemed a little low. The power prices seemed a little high. Um, it was just, uh, I'd be curious, thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the the cold weather has increased demand, and because it's uh, been cold, we've had lower runoff because it's still frozen, right? Not so melting. that's it's not melting. Plus, you, I mean, underlying all of this is really high natural gas prices, right? right so right. that marginal unit's a lot more expensive than it has been historically, um, and it's actually Northwest has been kind of on the upper range of those Western energy prices, which is really rare for April. Usually, we're getting to start right. to see some of that runoff, and we end up, you know, being at a low low price period. Um, so yeah, I think it's re- the, the markets this year are really interesting. August prices are still like, what was it? Like two fifty in the Northwest for August. Yeah. Um, it's, that's something to keep watching for the uh, uh, Western power pools, West resource adequacy program. Couldn't come at a better time to kind of help us understand the impacts of all of this, uh, and make the, make, make the world make sense, Bill, please make the <laughs> world make sense again. Bill, It's just a small task. something i've I've not been able to accomplish in the last 40 years i'm not sure i've got 40 left (laughs) it's like 41 is gonna get it done use the time you have bill use the time you've got right (laughs) thank you thank you help us obi-wan yeah yeah (laughs) oh my goodness all right well um if there are no other comments uh next up is our weekly walk through public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Paul, give us the typewriter. Thank you. Take it away, Dan. So Monday 18th marked Line Worker Appreciation Day. This year marks the ninth annual National Line Worker Appreciation Day, which is recognized every year on April 18th. It was established 2013 by the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives to honor the thousands of men and women who oftentimes risk their lives in hazardous conditions to ensure the reliability, uh, the reliable delivery of electricity to to make sure our lights stay on. So for those of us in the Northwest, the day was celebrated just a week after a snowstorm disrupted our distribution networks in um, across much of the area and required long hours of outage work to get the system back up and running. This is hours away from their family, sleeping. I mean, they really go out in all sorts of weather all year round, no matter what the time. So all the power planning and complex modeling uh, that the industry does is contingent on a continuous conductor from the power supply to the end users. So as electric utility enthusiasts and people who are have electricity, we're definitely line worker fanatics at public power underground. So just, I'd like to add my personal thanks and appreciation. There's been plenty of hours when I've seen Seattle City Light workers out uh, at late hours, all hours of night. And I always make a point whenever I'm like walking the dog, to be like, hey, appreciate it. Well, if, from my perspective, you know, it's easy for us to talk about the grid 
as an assumption or, or almost as an abstraction, uh, assume a reliable grid, right? Um, but of course, it, it's not something that happens by chance. Um, there, there is the planning part, but but somebody has to go out and build and maintain the system. Um, it's hard, physical, and sometimes dangerous work. Um, and if there's a, a fire, a windstorm, a tornado, a hurricane, what have you, these folks run toward the danger, not away. So it's easy for us, at least certainly for me, uh, to forget about the people who are actually out there making it happen. And so just a shout out to the men and women who build and maintain the lines, uh, the, the substations, the warehouses, the communications that keep the power flowing. Yeah, it was a bad storm this past week, too. And it, it was kind of a, a good uh, reminder right before line worker appreciation about how valuable these the, the work that goes into this is, how much we rely on them, and the amount of work it takes and during these storms, during these outages. And we had a snowstorm, but there are all types of different, like you mentioned, Bill, fires and hurricanes and tornadoes that, you know, at, at devastate distribution systems that we got to go rebuild. Um, and we so we had that. Uh, what was it like April 11th? It sounds like you were getting some of that this past week in Montana. Did you have some outages out there? Have you seen or is it kind of maintained a pretty reliable system? No, we, we didn't. So I live in Missoula. We didn't have uh, much at all. Uh, more of the snow was in the southeast. I drove through uh, Billings yesterday. Um, they had more snow, certainly. Uh, but I'm not sure there were many widespread outages. I think more uh, to the east, perhaps even east, far eastern Montana had some, and uh, and south into Wyoming. Yeah, and Karen, so you're in. You used to be in Pacific Corps. Are you still? No, I am not. I am now a PGE person. Okay. I mean, st- still an IOU, but just a different one. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it's, they're they're both okay. Good uh, point. Did you have outages? Uh, how how did you uh, fare in that storm? So I did not, uh, but Irene on our staff did. Actually, uh, Irene, uh, Mike Lynn, and uh, Lauren all did. Uh, and Lauren actually had hers during a our Markets 101 session that we were leading. Um, so That's it was awesome. it was kind of, I mean, it, it basically happened where she did the thing that Bill did earlier, which I imagine is going to get edited out, where we were like, is she just not moving? Or did she, <laughs> or did she freeze? And so, uh, but we, you know, worked our way through it. So it was totally fine, but yeah, just so about half of our staff lost power. So. Yep. And it is a reminder, you know, Deborah Smith in our interview with her did kind of mention that like a lot of these public servants, whether you work for an IOU or public power, we're all doing the same thing, right? The mission of going and providing reliable electric service. There's differences in the business models, which, you know, uh, I would highlight as some of the advantages of public power. But uh, ultimately, we're all just trying to provide reliable electric service to the customers that we serve. And yeah. Um, whether it's PG Pacific Corps or whether Dan wants to come in and make fun of me for something, go for it, Dan. No, no, I was just trying to get in a comment before you like somebody moved us along to um to Karen's uh story. Uh, I was actually talking about this with a uh somebody who does uh consulting in the industry. So last week I was at the Grid Forward concert conference oh, in Seattle. Yeah. yeah, lots of good content. Uh, and I was talking with, uh, met somebody, potential source, uh, who does unnamed grid consulting <laughs> and he was a former line worker and he was saying, and I a hundred percent as a journalist seen this in my career, hundred percent still agree with it. 
uh, you know, it's important for people like me who cover it at a high level, like you guys said, grid planning kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I don't cover it at the, the, you know, distribution level outside of a, in as much as it affects, uh, operations. Uh, but it, it is really important for me to stay in touch with people like line workers and who have that perspective, you know, because they see where, it, how this stuff plays out in the real world, real world. I can say absolutely. words. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And uh, yeah, like I said, you know, I've seen Seattle City Light people out there all the time walking my dogs because on our little loop here, we've got a um, line that uh, was done in the 60s, undergrounded. It's at the end of its life. So there's a lot of outages. That loop happens to be Northwest Northshire Road and Northwest Sherman. <laughs> Just for any Seattle City Light listeners. Yeah. I, you know, because that'll work. Why not? (laughs) Bill, you brought this uh, to our attention. You wanted to make sure we highlighted it. So thank you. I think we're ready. I think we're ready for the next one. All right. Okay, Paul, we're ready for the typewriter. And Karen has the next story. Yes, I do. Nevada law requires its investor-owned utility, EdV Energy, and all transmission providers in the state to join an RTO by 2030. Reporting by News Data's Abigail Sawyer in the April 15th edition of California Energy Markets dug into the bets by solar developers on the coming boom in transmission expansion and market access uh, such a move might cause. New and experienced developers are submitting applications for utility-scale solar projects on federal lands some of which are a gigawatt or more of capacity. The projects are mostly clustered in the southern counties near the California border and are currently winding their way through the lengthy permitting process at the state offices of the Federal Bureau of Land Management. If built, the docket of projects would add up to nearly 28 gigawatts in solar arrays alone. The proposed projects and new transmission also lay a good foundation for the creation of a Western regional transmission organization that could help maximize both renewable energy and transmission resources across the Intermountain West. In a phone interview, Cameron Dwyer, senior staff attorney for Western Resource Advocates uh, in Nevada, said an RTO could be helpful in solving many of the challenges of decarbonizing the grid in the Intermountain West and meeting renewable portfolio standard and greenhouse gas gas reductions goals across the region. But the RTO would need to be established with an eye to creating those solutions, Dwyer said. For more, including a list of applications uh, to the U.S. Department of the Interior Bureau of Land Management utility-scale solar projects in Nevada, you can find Abigail's reporting in California Energy Markets with a link in the show notes. Great. Thank you, Karen. One of the things I found, well, a couple things I found really fascinating. One was just trying to conceptualize how much space 28 gigawatts of solar was going to take. I, I realize there's a lot of empty space in, in Nevada, but my heavens, that's huge. Um, the, the other piece um, that that I was struck by was, um, I think included in the report was an estimate of a study that had been done by DOE uh, regarding uh, projects that had been proposed versus those that had actually gone to fruition. It was something like 23% over the time period that they looked at had actually uh, uh, come uh, to full fruition. Um, But even uh, 20, say 25% of 28 gigawatts is huge. just a massive amount of solar. And, and you think about how the impact of, of, let's say seven, let's say 10 gigawatts of solar in Nevada coming onto the system every single day and, and the ramping that's going to be necessary to deal with that 
the, the ramping capability, both up and down, uh, that's going to be necessary to deal with that. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. So part of the premise of this article is that like an RTO can help manage that because, right. you know, transmission development can help put that somewhere else that it can be better in, uh, incorporated into the network uh, with that has other storage capabilities and that an RTO may be able to help uh, better manage that transmission expansion. What's your take on that chair of Western Power Pool? Do you have a perspective on the value of an RTO for doing this type of work? Oh, you know, um, whether or not the Northwest develops its own RTO or, you know, or pulled in one direction with uh, SPP or the other direction with the Cal ISO, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to let the members of the Western Power Pool decide that. Uh, that that's not my role. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think that a, I think an RTO could help. Um, I I was involved in, uh, you know, the, the four or five prior efforts at uh, forming an RTO or um, a market in the Northwest. And, and you know, I'll confess, uh, uh, helped uh, kill at least one of them uh, because there, I didn't see benefits for public power uh, from uh, some of the earlier proposals. I think the landscape has changed. Certainly the advent of the, the massive amount of renewables that have come on, um, the uh, the fact that uh, you know other parts of the country are joining RTOs. What, I worked in the Midwest, uh, the Missouri River uh, for the six years prior to my retirement. And, and one of the things that happened over there to the Western Area Power Administration was as entities joined the SPP market uh, or SPP, they they lost their counterparties. So yeah. there was nobody for WAPA to actually do bilateral agreements with. And yep. that, as much as anything, drove them to join SPP. Uh, so, you know, I see just a lot of factors really uh, pushing us in, in that direction. And, and the fact of the matter is, uh, I think if we don't do it ourselves, and again, when I say ourselves, I mean, either form one ourselves, join SPP, join CalISO, uh, we're going to be forced to do it uh, regardless. So we're better off making the choice, making the decisions ourselves and getting it done. Yeah, that WAPA analogy around the drying up of the bilateral market, I think, is one that's really on the minds of Northwest entities to make sure that we continue to have some some entities to transact with uh, in, in the bilateral markets or, or moving somewhere else where you can maintain liquidity. This this story did kind of, you know, help me frame the the kind of work efficiency around an RTO? Because as you mentioned, Bill, there's this 28 gigawatts of interconnections, right? And somebody like you're obligated to evaluate those in, in a non-discriminatory way. And as you think about um, renewable development in the Northwest and continuing in the West, there does seem, and maybe I'm wrong, but there does seem to be some efficiency around having this regional organization who's responsible for making it through the queue and doing that and, and maybe doing some uh, uh, transmission interconnection uh, efficiencies on how you do that. And maybe that's a more uh, efficient way rather than the federal agency doing interconnections. Uh, Dan, didn't you do a story on the interconnection, Bonneville interconnection queue? Was that you? No, no, it wasn't. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that was a 
good story that listeners should check out. Also, uh, on that note, look for upcoming coverage from me about market exploration in the Northwest. Oh, oh that's not a nice gonna say teaser. more, but yeah. Okay. So, Was there an undisclosed Bill, source that maybe I'll, I'll give you a, a call? <laughs> but yeah. Source uh, familiar with the matter. That's how he wants to be uh, referred to in your story, Dan. <laughs> right, Bill? I don't know. I'm just, I'm, yes. just kidding. I'm just kidding. You shouldn't kid about that stuff. I'm sorry. I just enjoy it. Especially <laughs> making Dan uh, uncomfortable a little bit. A little uh, bit. I, I've got a pretty high bar for feeling uncomfortable, making myself or being feeling uncomfortable or awkward. You can talk to my wife about it. Okay. That's one thing you got to kind of have a high bar for as a journalist. Yeah. There's a lot of awkward, uncomfortable situations that you're like, I'm just going to make this even more awkward. <laughs> I'm just here to make it more awkward. <laughs> yeah, I got questions and they might make some people uncomfortable. But That's how you end up getting nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, folks. There it That's, is. If yeah. you want advice, there you go. Uh, if you want Never. advice as a journalist. <laughs> Bill, is there anything else here you wanted to add on this no, topic? Any well, thoughts? it was interesting coming down here to Laramie. Uh, the uh, front page of the Laramie Boomerang, which is the local newspaper on Friday, had uh, an article about uh, wind development in Wyoming and talking about how in the next few years, uh, they've got about 3,200 megawatts of wind installed right now. They anticipate doubling that uh, basically with uh, if the Anschutz uh, development goes through. Uh, and then on top of that, Pacific Core uh, plans to add another 1,150 megawatts. So just here alone in, in this state, you could end up with uh, seven and a half gigawatts of wind. Um, and and certainly significant solar potential here as well because it's pretty sunny on the east side. So um, yeah, I mean I I think that is is going to uh, put further pressure on uh, a closer examination of an RTO and how that might benefit uh, everyone. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'll say again. Uh, Looking back at the analogy of, of WAPA's experience and the WAPA customers, uh, they were WAPA was able to work out uh, an agreement with SPP uh, to preserve uh, transmission delivery for preference customers. Um, so that was that was to the good. Now, now uh, one of the significant challenges that they're still working through over there was um, basically ultimately eliminating all of the bilateral transmission agreements, the grandfathered agreements. Uh And that is very, very difficult. You should not underestimate how hard that and contentious that can be. Yeah, Bonnell's got a lot of bilateral uh, transmission agreements, grandfathered. And uh, so this that could be an interesting one. Yep. Okay, I think I'm ready. You ready, Bill? I am ready. Okay, Paul, give me the typewriter, and you've got the next prompt. I do, I do, and it's I. I there's four stories I'm going to combine into one topic. We're going to talk about. We're going to weave this all together. We'll see how the connections come. The first one is that Kaiso is developing a new participation model for energy storage resources called the Energy Storage Resources Model. Well named. Um, Kaiso said the growing amount of energy storage warrants consideration of a new market model to ensure storage resources are appropriately compensated and the market can accommodate the unique features of storage, things like battery storage. The straw proposal was issued March 30th and Kaiso was taking comments through May 31st. This happens at the same time where 
we're getting news stories uh, for the second one that Southern California Edison's $1.2 billion, 537.5 megawatt, four hour, 2,150 megawatt hour energy storage project, which was scheduled to be operational by August, is facing delays as a result of supply disruptions. Dave Shreve, head of Wood McKenzie's global energy storage practice, was quoted by Linda Daly Paulson in her article. April 15th article saying that, quote, force majeure was absolutely being claimed by a number of U.S. developers as a result of, of COVID, unquote. He also noted that it remains to be seen whether using force majeure is a viable means for developers to avoid project delivery delay penalties. Third, the Wall Street Journal covered Rivian Chief Executive Officer R.J. Scaring's warning that the auto industry could soon face a shortage of battery uh, supplies for electric vehicles, the direct quote being, quote, put very simply, all the world's cell production combined represents well under 10% of what we need in the next 10 years, meaning 90 to 95% of the supply chain doesn't exist, unquote. And lastly, in our batch of battery stories, Linda Daly Paulson dug deeper into the debate about the factors that could be future choke points for deployment of the technology with quotes from both Alex Morris, the executive director of the California Energy Storage Alliance, and Dan Shreve, head of Wood McKenzie's global energy storage practice, who have differing perspectives, differing perspectives on the choke points for the development of the battery storage technology. Linda Daly Paulson closed the article with a quote from Dan Shreve saying, quote, it will be terribly interesting to see how market share unfolds in the next couple of years, unquote. I think that is a great summary of these four articles with all of the ways batteries are moving throughout our electric markets and the supply and chain and supply and demand for those technologies across industries, auto and uh, utility. We're linking to all of these articles in our show notes. So there's a lot better and more in insightful commentary there. Yeah, you know, I, I thought this was some great coverage uh, if from my colleagues uh, at News Data. And, you know, the, I, since I got, since I came on board I, with clearing up, I've thought one of the most interesting kind of long-term stories is in the industry is figuring out how to, quantify the value of batteries, given that it cuts across these areas that formerly were siloed, uh, principally transmission and generation. And I think it's been interesting to watch commissions grapple with that. And so glad to see Kaiso uh, it, taking on some of that. And that was an aspect, the charge levels, uh, you know, that was an aspect of uh, compensation that I didn't appreciate formally, but yeah, state uh, it, of charge it, stuff, right? You need to take yeah, into account the yeah. state of charge on these batteries. That makes sense. You know, I'll say though that even if we get that figured out, the model for comp adequately compensating these batteries, you know, none of that matters if we don't have the supply chain. And this has been an aspect that I think has not gotten enough attention. And like the lockdowns in China, as as the Rivian story indicates, like this is not going to be a short term problem after you know once those lockdowns are lifted and china can ramp up production the supply chain uh is just can ramp up only so much and like what we need on the in the west to keep up with bringing on renewables oof, we'll see yeah they use the anal uh, analogy to the chip shortage 
And, yeah. and the Rivian CEO was saying that chip shortage is just like a like a, a very cute little precursor to what we're actually going to see as disruptions to the lithium-ion battery space. But Bill, did you have a thoughts on on this kind of the battery space supply chain disruptions and you know, the world we're entering into? Well, first, uh, I, I'm going to have to go back and read uh, Jason's article again several times to understand exactly what California is proposing. Um, clearly, uh, there's a, a lot of work for consultants involved. Um, you know, last night, apparently, uh, Elon Musk had an earnings call for Tesla, and he said there that uh, he talked about lithium being the limiting factor in the development of electric cars and batteries, and that Tesla may have to get into mining and refining uh, lithium at scale. Uh, in order to guarantee their supply of of this uh, of this element, it's um, the what did I I read um, the uh, oh and on um, yeah the the estimate of global demand for lithium was uh, estimated to grow up something like forty times in the next twenty years with with cobalt. Uh, graphite and nickel somewhere between 15 and 20 times, all for uh, batteries and electric vehicles. So, uh, you know, starting with the mining of the rare earth elements necessary, feeding into uh, ultimately the production capability, which doesn't exist yet. Um, you know that's that's a it's a really really challenging issue, and I just I too will be fascinated to see how the market responds uh, uh, to uh, advance the production of these uh, these different elements. Yeah, you know the, we like we try to be hopeful at Public Power Underground, and this is part of the energy transition, right? This is the right. world that we need to be facing. It does seem like, to Dan's point, I, I've started actually see a bunch of news articles kind of around this topic recently. Um, and it is starting to get some some press. I actually found um, the Catalyst Pod with uh, with oh why uh, why am I missing Shale Khan uh, just covered it this week. I haven't listened to it yet, but you know there's a lot of work here to do around um, making sure that we have access to these these uh, rare earths so that we can make the production. But uh, and there's a lot of smart people working on it. One other element I wanted to tie in is there was a recent study that Jesse Jenkins and Jacob Mays published on the electricity markets under deep decarbonization that talks a little bit about the type of market mechanisms you need in order to um, make sure that in this energy transition, you rethink your market structure, which is part of what Kais was trying to do, right? Batteries weren't a big part of the grid when you made the market, but now we need to think about it. I think that's another element of advancement, discussion, to make sure we have the mechanisms to, to do the transition well. Exactly. I think it's going to be good. Yeah. Uh, Elon Musk's comment I thought were interesting and, and reminded me of Ford did similar stuff, you know, 100 years ago and got into antitrust issues about it. So as much as Elon Musk wants to do that, It'll be interesting to see how the legal side of that plays out. Well, after he finishes buying Twitter, he can take on the SEC and we'll see what happens. If he doesn't have enough yeah. on his plate. Yeah, we got it in. We got it in on today's pod. The biggest news today is that apparently Elon bought Twitter, like it just happened. And but they uh, let him buy it? I thought he yeah. had tried and they said no. And then they were like, okay, yeah. throw in a couple extra billion dollars. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Can we That's power awesome. electric vehicles with NFTs? That's what yeah. I want. 
<laughs> the answer is no. The answer is no. Because <laughs> nobody yeah. actually understands NFTs, so they might. Yeah. We did a whole special. I did a whole segment with Ellen Groves around NFTs. Yeah. I understood it deep enough. I was like, for do one you minute. understand them now? <laughs> no, I don't, but I have a better understanding. Right. All I know is they take an awful lot of electricity uh, to mine. And okay. Generate. We're just going to do this. They don't have to. Right. Right. There is one, there's a proof, proof of, of work. Proof that's, of work. That's, and other is a proof of stake. Right. And all, all Bitcoin is proof of work. And that is just a technology we need to like be like, hey, that was a great idea you had. Bitcoin is, is not the future. Uh, Ethereal, I think, is transitioning to a proof of stake. And the proof so, of stake mechanisms for NFTs, they don't consume a lot of energy. And we can do this. Um, if there's so, so what happens to all the so people has own to say. Yeah. So NFTs yeah. are non-fungible Tokens. tokens, tokens, which yes. are not the same though as as uh, Bitcoin as a and other cryptocurrency. Yes. correct. It just uses the same underlying platform, uh, right? The distributed but they don't involve platform. mining cryptocurrency. Uh, that so I understand. NFTs, NFTs. There are some NFTs that run on proof of work. Okay. Uh, underlying oh, architecture right. in the same way that I, Bitcoin runs on a uh, under a proof okay. of work underlying so, architecture. Sarah can edit out me incorrectly. No, where it's you're no, it's it's good. It's I'm clarifying. It's great. It's clarifying. It's I'm not great. getting okay. the. Pulitzer we are running out that. of time. Yeah. No, but you are <laughs> getting right. a Pulitzer for the next article. Let's see. Paul, <laughs> give us a typewriter, please. And Karen, you're up next. All right. Well, our own Dan Catchpole, pictured below me, at least in my lineup, uh, had a feature article in Clearing Up this week covering DOE's $2.5 billion transmission jumpstart program. The Department of Energy plans to release a notice of intent in early May that will provide details on who can apply, how to apply, and the ways applications will be evaluated to get financial backing from the tra transmission facilitation program. Uh, Dan was able to interview friend of the underground, underground Northwest Public Power celebrity and acting a deputy deputy assistant secretary for the Energy Resilience Division in the Office of Electricity at DOE. Long title, uh, Michelle Maneri for the article. Dan quotes her in the article saying, "Quote: The main goal for the Department of Energy is to make a wise investment with the taxpayer with taxpayer money that we can help uh, that we." can get to help accelerate uh, interregional transmission developments, unquote. To get there, uh, at least 20 viable projects in various stages uh, of design and permitting, according to an April 2020 report by Grid Strategies. If the projects were completed, this would add about 8,000 miles of high-voltage transmission and twenty or 42,000 megawatts of transfer capacity to the U.S. power grid. That would increase the country's transfer capacity by about 12%, the report says. However, that is only one-tenth of the capacity the U.S. needs to decarbonize its power sector, according to the Grid Strategies report. For more uh, info, you can link to Dan's article in the April 22nd edition of Clearing Up or listen to what Dan has to say right now. Yeah, I uh, really appreciate Michelle taking the time to sit down with me and talk about this. It, you know, so this was 2.5 billion, uh, yeah, billion of uh, a bunch of money for transmission uh, that was in the infrastructure bill that passed last year through Congress. But, you know, everybody I talked to about this said that is nowhere near enough money um, to jumpstart. Uh, the 2.5 billion is nowhere near enough money to jumpstart that many projects. Cause I look projects cost hundreds of millions at 
at the least, if not, you know, oftentimes multiple billions. Uh, and so if you're buying in 50% uh, of into a project to help get it going, uh, which is the idea, I realized this wasn't in your, uh, the summary. So the idea was uh, that they, DOE gets in, buys, uh, invests in, gives them financial backing up to half the project costs, essentially, uh, to jumpstart programs that, uh, you know, there's this chicken and egg problem. Developers want to build transmission, but they need uh, generation and off-takers. Generation wants to do more transmission, but they need to know they've got off-takers, which requires having guaranteed, uh, usually requires having guaranteed firm capacity, uh, transmission capacity, and so chicken egg problem. So DOE is trying to step in and kind of solve that problem, but really you can only do two, maybe four projects at a time. And is that enough to make as big a dent, as big a difference as we, as fast as we need it? We'll see. Yeah. Fortunately, we've got all those batteries to help us out in the meantime. Oh, those lithium ion batteries. Yeah. <laughs> Any thoughts on this, Bill? The transmission well, expansion? Well, and the I, I mean, I really throw a question back to you guys. It, it's, it's sort of been my impression that uh, financing is not the problem with transmission lines. It's whether or not you can get it cited. Uh, and secondly, whether you've got some sort of offtake agreements to support the financing that you can go get. So, so financing is the least of your worries, it seems to me, if you're trying to build a transmission line. It's the first two problems. Is that, am I wrong in that? No. You know, I don't I know mean, for that's... sure, but I do think, you know, if you can access uh, debt that will take on more risk, right? So if you have the federal government who's willing to take on riskier projects, maybe you can build a project with less offtakes and stuff. Maybe you can do something more. But I think you're right. The major issue is largely uh, the timelines and permitting in order to get it built. Right? You're right. It's a critical path versus just another issue. And this is another issue, probably not the critical issue that prevents transmission uh, development. It's, Dan, well, Dan was trying to cut me off and correct sorry, me. Go ahead, Dan. Come on, this no, is your turn. No, well, I, and I, I, I don't mean to like elbow Karen out. So Karen. No, please, no, no. I go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. All right. Uh, so, I mean, from the reporting that I've done for this story and previous stories, as I understand it, um, there is uh, plenty of capital out there that's interested and wants to invest in this. So DOE is just trying to bridge that gap between having enough financing to get projects started and uh, kind of like as acting as like an anchor tenant sort of. Uh, and that like you mentioned off takers, like that's, you get into this again, chicken and egg program, uh, renewable developers don't want to start investing a lot of time in projects unless they know they've got transmission. Transmission doesn't want to spend a lot of developers don't want to spend a lot of time investing in projects unless they know they've got stuff coming in on one end and stuff going out on the other end. And so again, there's, there are a lot of program or projects that are kind of in that limbo. DOE's goal is to step in, bridge that gap, and then, uh, you know, ensure that there's the financial confidence behind it for the project to move ahead and other financing to come into it. So yes, the financing is out there uh, once there's confidence that a project's going to go ahead. But to that point, yeah, something I've st started looking into more 
And please contact me if uh, any listeners want to share information or, or know about this and can educate me, is the siting issue. You can look at a wind map. And as one developer told me, he's like, look, you can look at a wind map. You know what the most valuable places are, uh, but can you site it there? And can you get a transmission corridor uh, to move it from there to uh, you know the demand centers? And so, like I said, that's please contact me, listeners, to educate me about that. I will loop back into an earlier story that we have the we had the Nevada story that talked about solar development, and they rep they reference this uh, grid. Uh, Greenlink West, uh, which is one of the projects that uh, Dan uh, referenced uh, this uh, grid strategy study. It's listed on this map. We have a great visual. If you want to jump over to YouTube, you can just click on the timestamp and you can mm -hmm. check out this wonderful map uh, with the strategies that the 20 uh, transmission projects that grid strategies had identified. One of them is Gateway West that terminates at the start of Boardman to Hemingway. Interesting little project there. It, you know, we're running out of time. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yeah, we're running out of time. I got to get you out of here by 520, Dan. That's it. Well, Karen. Let's hit the typewriter and move on. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll close out the episode with a quick rundown of news stories we didn't get to in our TLDR segment. We're calling Energy West Light. First, Paul has a promo. Take it away, Paul. I actually gave it to Karen. Karen, take the, take it away. I'm going to take it this week. <laughs> I, I, it was my edit. I'm bad. No. I did not do well this week. Okay. All right. Uh, Northwest Public Power Association believes in public power. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associations in the greater Pacific Northwest by offering education, training, communications, government relations, and services like RFP and job postings. In addition to public power, what else is important to NWPPA? local control, member needs, integrity, and quality products and services. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Uh, to learn more or register for a class, go to nwppa.org. That's nwppa.org. Believe in public power. All right. Next up, we are TLDRing our way through the news in a segment we're calling Energy West Light. This is Energy West Light, a segment where we TLDR our way through the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Bill Drummond. And we're lightening up Energy West. In fish news, the Northwest Power and Conservation Council has approved funding for Columbia Basin hatchery and habitat projects in its fish and wildlife program. Along with several recommendations for dealing with flat budgets, preparing for climate change, and improving the review process. Reporting on the story by KC Mahaffey. Rick Adair covered a demand side news out of the Northeast Washington. The current owner of the former Pondere newsprint plant in Usk, Washington, is trying to work out kinks in its plan to run both newsprint manufacturing and cryptocurrency mining operations using low-cost power provided by Pondere County PUD. Pondere newsprint used up used to use up to 85 megawatts when it was manufacturing newsprint. The current owner, Allrise, is proposing a 300 megawatt first phase and a 600 megawatt second phase of its project. 900 megawatts seems like a pretty big kink. But that is me. a proof of work cryptocurrency right. mining operation. That's what that is. All right. Uh, Linda Daly-Paulson is keeping up with the battery beat. 
Her April 22nd article in California Energy Markets covers California Public Utility Commission's approval of nine energy storage contracts with a total capacity of almost 1.6 gigawatts proposed by Pacific Gas and Electric. The projects are located throughout the state and are expected to be operational beginning in October 2023. All use lithium-ion battery technology and have long-term resource adequacy agreement contract terms of 15 years. In addition to energy storage contracts, Linda's story on the April 21st CPUC meeting also covered their adoption of rules for a multi-billion dollar program designed to ensure all state residents have broadband access and a new action plan for the state's distributed energy resources program, the Distributed Energy Resource Action Plan 2.0, or DER 2.0. The Oregon PUC on April 5th approved Portland General Electric's interim power bill discount program targeting low-income residential customers, the first ever offered in the state. To maintain a low barrier to enrollment, particularly early on, the program allows income self-certification and will also confer eligibility on groups already participating in low-income energy assistance programs, such as those receiving energy assistance in the Oregon Housing and Community Services System, coverage by Clearing Up's Rick Adair. Abigail Sawyer covered the April 20th announcement that more than 20 parties representing government, labor, industry, and utilities joined the U.S. Department of Energy in signing a Memorandum of Understanding in California to collaborate on integrating bi-directional electric vehicle charging into national and global energy infrastructure. Included as signees were the IBEW Local 11 and the Los Angeles chapter of the National Electric Contractors Association, shortened as NECA. Both organizations were initial parties to the MOU and said they would train and provide a skilled workforce to install bi-directional charging infrastructure. In the news roundup section of Clearing Up, we've got three quick stories. First, Oregon has established a $10 million fund to incentivize energy-efficient rebuilds of the more than 5,000 structures lost in wildfires in the state in August and September of 2020. Second, in a nod to the relaxation of COVID-19 restrictions in Washington, Snohomish County PUD recently reopened its headquarter building in Everett and three of its five community offices to the public. I did see a, one of my friends, a friend of the underground, in an office at Snohomish County PUD today. It was great to see him. Uh, his background, I guess, is different. And third, Idaho Power is asking customers and interested stakeholders for feedback as it develops a cost-benefit study of rooftop solar and other customer-owned generation resources. The Idaho PUC ordered the study in December 2021 after the utility raised concerns that the export credit rate was too high. And drawing a story from outside news data, which might be a preview of an upcoming story from clearing up our own Dan Catchpole, the U.S. Commerce Department announced March 28th that it's investigating solar manufacturing operations in Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia to determine if companies there are circumventing import tariffs by incorporating Chinese equipment and components in their products that would otherwise face U.S. trade restrictions imposed on China. If confirmed by the Commerce Department, it could lead to countervailing duties ranging from 50% to 250% on imported equipment, which could pro potentially retroactively charges date, dating back to November of 2021. I was 
I was so emotionally invested in making sure I got it right that I made it a little bit jumbled. I'm sorry about that. Dan Catchpole sent us the story, which was covered by the Albuquerque Journal, possibly an upcoming story by Dan Catchpole. Well, uh, thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners and news data for letting us use their leads. And thanks to Paul for compiling them this week, since Ian is on vacation. Now back to the crew to close out the episode. That's Energy West West Light. Light. Gotta work on that. Nailed it. No notes. Anything we wanted to talk about there? Uh, We we are on the clock, but we got a couple minutes if anybody wants to dive a little bit deeper. My thing uh, is, I like the the paper company. You can't see my air quotes if you're only uh, watching on, uh, (laughs) if you're only listening, but... uh, it's a, I feel like it's a, oh no, we're, we're not, we're not really going to buy, do that much Bitcoin mining. I mean, obviously they are cause they're getting what, 300 and then 600, but um, no, I just, it's uh, both, it's both, it's both. Karen, oh, it's it's both. So 300 and then, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Right. So I don't know. I, I like, I like, I like, I like that. It's a good. As a former sure. newspaper man, uh, sad commentary on the future of newspapers yeah. subscribe to your local newspaper yep. uh everybody and i was actually it's the last paper i was at the one that got the pulitzer nominations uh everett herald oh. covering include among my beat beats primary i was the boeing reporter but i also covered uh snohomish pud way to bring it all together nicely done yeah. Thank you. There was an interesting related story uh, recently where a Bitcoin miner in Montana had been buying, I think, all of the output of the Harden uh, generating station, a coal-fired plant in southeastern Montana. And they've announced uh, they're pulling the plug on that because they uh, want to use green power to mine Bitcoin and not uh, coal. Yeah, Marathon Digital. Uh, Right. They actually are the only Bitcoin company that I've dealt with uh, that is very transparent and happy to talk to reporters about. Yeah, no, it's a re- very refreshing change. And uh, so, yeah. Okay. Well, we're running out of time. I will say friend of the yes. underground, Josh Tran, talks, asks me all the time when we're going to cover these uh, tariffs and the trade commerce department stuff. And so, Dan, you got to come to contact me. Yeah. Well, I don't know that he's a source for you, but he's really interested. So I'll send him the article once you write it. OK, that's all the news we're covering this week. The next regularly scheduled episode will be recorded May 9th and published May 12th. To make sure you don't miss it or bonus episodes in the meantime, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app. You can also find our merchandise on Shopify by searching for Public Power Underground. A wonderful job being the celebrity guest host this week, Bill. Do you did do you Thank feel you. valued and appreciated? Did you I like this? This was fun, do. wasn't it? It once once I got my camera working and solved all the other issues this, today. Yes, it's been fun.
Good. And we're getting it under the wire, Karen. You got to go in two minutes, but do you, you feel valued go. and appreciated? I do. I always do. Okay. Well, this is, it's it's probably the last scheduled appearance on Public Power Underground for a while because uh, your due date is forthcoming. Oh, that's right. Uh, and we did get you in uh, two right before to make sure that everybody would have something in the feed to go listen to. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I always Yeah, we missed that in the banter. Congratulations, Karen. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And Dan, you feel valued and appreciated? Always, Paul. I, I love this I dynamic we, we have. We uh, reciprocate the feeling. Yeah, I always, I, I love this, uh, this relationship we're building, Dan, where we can be honest and forthright to each other, and we're still friends. It's great. I, that makes me scared for the next phone call I get from you. Hey, <laughs> hey energy. It's okay. Is He's really good with awkward. Together. He got good with awkward yeah. situations. No, I so. did notice. Paul, your I'm just going to put this out there. Been great. Uh, yes, I, I, I try to be honest. But Abigail, when she was on last week or two weeks ago, she said she was going to be on Energy West. I was refreshing the app. I was like, hey, I'm really li- curious to listen to Abigail on Energy West. Her p- episode never got published. There's yeah. a story there. You got to tell me offline because we only have uh, one minute yep. left. Okay, ready, Bill. Okay, wrapping up. As always, send any news, questions, opinions, corrections, or complaints to Paul on Twitter at at a power manager. Or, if you're a friend of the underground, you can send any of us a note. You don't have to be subscribed to NewsData's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We're likely recruiting you to come and join on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed to our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Western Power Pool uh, not endorsed anything Bill said. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Special thanks to our celebrity guest host uh, for being uh, uh, for participating in this week's episode. Thank you, Bill, uh, for doing it. Really good. Really appreciate everything you brought including the pitch for Public Power. Thank you so much. Public Power Underground is for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, where you're valued and appreciated. We bring in some people way smarter than I.